0: seated. Eight to ten-year-olds have a class up in the back. They can be dismissed to go to that if they'd like to do that. As I said before, welcome to those of you visiting. Welcome, Canyon Church family, to another Lord's Day. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 13. I know you thought I was going to say First Samuel uh, Lord willing, that'll be next week, Acts chapter 13 this morning. This morning we're going to look at verses 13 to 52, quite a large section. I'm not going to be able to say everything about everything in those verses, but I do want you to see the overview and what uh, is happening in this great chapter. And before I dive into it, uh, I, I, don't, I wasn't here last week, so I don't know if we formally welcomed the Ariano family, but Josh Ariano has been asked to come and be uh, one of our new pastors over counseling and youth ministry, and they landed about, I don't know, what, guys? Nine, 10, 12, 13 days ago, recently, uh, but they're here. Sarah, I won't normally do this, but where are you guys? Uh, Josh, Sarah, where? Okay, there you are, all right. I, I was looking over there, For some reason I thought you were over there. Okay, there you guys are, all right, welcome. So glad you guys are here. If you get a chance or haven't, haven't seen the Arianas yet, please go see them. After the service, we're so thrilled that they're back home with us. Um, I want to give you a heads up as we go through this. Um, you would think that everything is buttoned up and done perfectly at this church. A kid. Um, I sometimes change texts. I change titles. Uh, in your worship guide, it says Acts 13, 13 to 57, and you're nervous because you see that chapter 13 ends in 52. I am not going to preach things that are outside of the scripture today, Uh, that was my fault. And then I went on and changed the title of the sermon. So the screen should say, none like him, yes it does, because that's what the title was going to be as of this last Wednesday. And then Thursday came. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to call it Jesus on display. So in your worship guide you've got Jesus on display and the screen you've got none like him, but that actually works out pretty well. Because this passage is showing that God the Father puts Jesus on display, and the reason we should be aware of that is because there's no one like Jesus Christ. So you can keep either of the titles, I'd encourage you to keep both of them, okay? So none like Him, Jesus on display. Let me read this passage, Acts 13, starting in verse 13, going all the way down to the end of the chapter. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath." And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you... Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Jesus on display. There are a number of ways that Christians try to put Jesus on display, and sometimes we're successful at that. Even this morning's worship service is trying to highlight the works of Jesus. We sing songs intentionally that talk about His life and death and resurrection. We as Christians want to put Jesus on display when we meet neighbors and friends and go to work. We want Jesus to live through us and we want people to see His character. We try to put Jesus on display in many ways, even sometimes with the jewelry that people wear, trying to put Jesus and what he did on display. And sometimes we're successful at it and sometimes we're not. Thank God for grace. But we want to put Jesus on display. This chapter, Acts 13, is the very beginning of Paul's missionary journeys, Paul's first missionary journey. And we start here in Acts 13. And what's happening is Paul is highlighting that God in this passage, God in human history, God is putting his own son on display. Talk about a proud father. A father taking his son and teaching people about what his son came to do, who he is. And so, if you were kind of taking a quiz and and you were asked the question, who's the main character in Acts chapter 13? There'd There'd be a challenge there. Because God, God the Father, is the one acting all throughout this passage. God raised him. It actually says that four times in the passage. God chose the people of Israel, God led them out with an uplifted arm. He put up with them in the wilderness, He destroyed the other nations, the ungodly nations. He gave the people Saul. So God's actions are all throughout this passage. But it's interesting, God's actions are all throughout the passage, but you see that God is putting His Son before everyone. So who's the main character? Jesus? Yes. God the Father? Yes. But God the Father is putting Jesus on display before us. My prayer this morning is that we would see Jesus all the more clearly. We would respond to what's taught here in worship, adoration, love for God the Father and God the Son, as God the Spirit shows us the glory of God. So Paul is putting Christ, or showing that God is putting Christ on display. So our our passage, I'll break it down in three parts. I'll do it this way. Three truths that God wants us to understand about Jesus. God, again, putting Jesus on display. Let's look at three truths that God wants us to understand about Jesus. Now again, I'm not going to be able to say everything and teach everything about all the verses that I read all right? But I do want you to see kind of the overview and the flow of what's happening here. It's significant. First, first way, first thing, first truth that God wants us to understand about Jesus is this, found in verses 13 to 29, salvation history culminates in Jesus. People have been waiting for a Messiah, waiting for someone to save them, and not just Israel, the world is waiting, and Jesus is the culmination of that. Salvation history from the Old Testament on is pointing to Jesus Christ. And what do we do? People on this side of the cross 2,000 years later, we point back and we show that salvation history is connected to Jesus Christ. Now, verses 13 to 15 kind of give us the lay of the land, the setting, what's happening here. I told you it's Paul's first missionary journey. He would go on two others, and this is uh, happening in Antioch, this is where the first missions movement went out. And so, what's the message here from Paul? Let's look at the setting in verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, that's John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. So, there's some sort of split there. We're not going to get into all of that right now. There's some sort of split among the missionaries. John Mark leaves, goes to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came down to Antioch in Pisidia. So, the location of this passage is in Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, that's our Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath day, on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue (coughs) sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, here's what you need to understand about synagogue worship. They would read a uh, a portion of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Then they would read something from the prophets, and those two readings would be connected. The prophets would show how, they would give a passage from the prophets and show how it's connected to the Torah. So they would read that, and then the ruler, there was typically a ruler of the synagogue, here it's in plural, the rulers of the synagogue, would then open it up to any lay men, any any, uh, men who were not synagogue rulers, and say, anybody have a word to speak in light of the passages that we read? And so they turn to these visiting visiting missionaries, not knowing what they're going to get, kind of risky giving someone an open mic, but they do it, they don't know what they're going to get, and Paul says this, brothers, I'm sorry, verse 16, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Now I want you to see this, as I go through Paul's sermon, notice all the things that God does. And as as you see what God does, you're going to see a merciful God, a good God, a gracious God. But let's go through it and just see all the things that God does, all right? Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. I told you I was going to get into the sermon, okay, but hold on, one more thing. He's talking to two groups here. So he's in the synagogue and there are two groups. He says men of Israel, that's one, so Jewish people, men of Israel, and you who fear God. A God-fearer in this time is a Gentile, they're not Jewish. It's a Gentile who believes in the God of the Jews. So these Gentile believers in the God of the Jews and these Jewish people, okay, so those are the two audience, God-fearers. When you see that in the book of Acts, that's what it's referring to, Gentiles that trust in the God of Israel, all right? So men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. So, God determined to save a particular nation, to be closely connected to a particular nation. That's the nation of Israel. He started them way back in Genesis 12 with Abraham. He chose them. Why didn't He choose another nation? I don't know. Best I can tell from what the Scripture says is because they were unlikely to display the power of God. All these other nations had armies and military, and Israel wasn't much of anything. So he's going to display his power into that nation. He brings them to Egypt and makes them great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, verse verse 17, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Put up with them. That's... A word that you often think of when you think of parenting or grandparenting or friendship. I'm putting up with you. God puts up with them. Why? God's long-suffering. He's patient. Gives us a clue, by the way, that He didn't put up with them because they were always wonderful. He puts up with them in the wilderness. 19, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, He gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. So, God gave them people that would settle their disputes with one another. number of judges throughout the land of Israel, kind of regionally judging disputes between the people, that was a gift of God. Justice and determining right and wrong is a gift from God. So, God gives them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. Now... We're studying through the book of 1 Samuel in our normal Sunday uh, services, when it says they asked for a king, those of you from Canyon Prescott, those of you who are regular attenders and know kind of the book of 1 Samuel by now, is that a high point in the people of Israel's life or a low point, they asked for a king? It's a low point. Okay, so you're seeing Paul's sermon. God has done this, God has done that. He's chosen, he's put up with, he's given them judges. God's goodness, God's goodness, God's goodness. They asked for a king. Back in 1 Samuel, we know that God told Samuel the prophet, they're not rebelling against you, Samuel. They're not rebelling against you because you're a judge. They're rebelling against me. I'm their king, but they want someone else. 21, they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David. That's also a gracious gift from God, to raise up David to be their king. Of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. God raised up a good king. Saul, bad king. God raises up a good king, again, because he's gracious. And as 2 Samuel will teach, David would continue to lead the nation. They would thrive. They would prosper under his leadership. Even spiritually, they would thrive under his leadership for a time. So God has been good. Verse 23, of this man's offspring, David, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior. So you see how Paul's going back in a sermon at the synagogue, and he's retracing the Jewish history. And so far, a number of the Jews in that synagogue are probably saying, that's right, we're God's chosen people. That's right, he did that for us. That's right, we love David, go David. That's right. And then, Paul gets to Jesus. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. Jesus, as He promised. God promised to David an everlasting kingdom from His lineage. And so, look down the line from David's lineage, and God raises up Jesus, the Savior, from the line of David. God is going to bless the nation of Israel and the nations through someone that comes from David's family. And Paul in this sermon is saying, that's Jesus Christ. Verse 24, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance. Now, it's interesting here. He's talking about David and then Jesus. Then all of a sudden he goes to some interesting prophet, John the Baptist. Why does he go right away to John the Baptist? Because the Old Testament in a number of places pointed to someone who would come right before the Messiah came. And someone would come as a forerunner and say, "He's, he's just about here get ready, repent, baptize, have your sins washed away. That's the picture of it. Someone's coming right behind me. So it's no wonder Paul highlights John the Baptist, because when you hear John the Baptist, or when you hear coming forerunner, coming prophet, if you're Jewish, you're thinking, okay, someone's coming right after him. That's right. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, kind of finishing off his ministry, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. Some people thought he was the Messiah because of how amazing his teaching was and and how in tune with God he was. But he's pointing to someone coming right behind him. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. You all think I may be the Messiah. I'm not even close. Verse 26. Now, Paul's giving this Jewish history. And now he turns the instruction to the people sitting in front of him. Brothers. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham. So he's speaking specifically to the Jews in that synagogue. And those among you who fear God. Now the Gentiles in that synagogue. So he's looking at them, addressing both groups. To us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which they're read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. What's he saying? He's saying, I mean, he's talking about what happens every synagogue Sabbath, what always happens. We read from the law and we read from the prophets, and those are pointing to someone. And he's saying, we do this all the time. And there are people that didn't recognize Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and the fulfillment of the prophets. And you know what they did because they didn't recognize him? They condemned him. They killed him. It's almost as if he's saying that and letting it hang, and they're maybe sitting there thinking, is that what you're saying that we've done? Yes, that's what he's saying. You haven't connected the dots from Scripture. You haven't seen Genesis 3 and Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and 2 Samuel 7 and Isaiah 11. You haven't seen all of those as leading to Jesus Christ, the Messiah. People just like you just recently didn't connect those dots and then they didn't understand who Jesus was, so they condemned Him, executed Him. Continuing in verse 28, and though they found no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have Him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the tomb. Isn't that interesting? Verse 29, when they, the ones who killed Jesus, carried out all that was written of him, it was written in the Old Testament that the Messiah would suffer, would die at the hands of those who were rejecting him. It's as if God was sovereign over the whole thing, even the rejection When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. What should we get from these passages? Notice salvation history is pointing to Jesus. Paul's highlighting that. The Jews of that day would have thought, David, David, he's our man. If he can't do it, nobody can. (laughs) And Paul's saying, no, 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 David's dead still. David's body's in the grave. You'll see that later. David, from David's line comes someone else, Jesus, a savior, and it's based on him that we preach to you a message of salvation. Salvation history culminates in Jesus. They failed to recognize Jesus. This is the greatest thing, the greatest person in all human history, the savior. You should know who Jesus is, what he's claimed, what he's taught, how he fulfills God's plan. If you're here and you don't know much about Jesus or you're not sure that you're right with Jesus, I would encourage you to read one of the four books that are about his life on earth. See how he fulfilled prophecy from the Old Testament. Read the Gospel of Matthew, read Mark, read Luke, read John. This people here, the people he's referring to, the people that didn't understand Jesus and so they condemned him, please don't make the same mistake. Jesus is amazing, Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is in control, Jesus is good, He listens to His people's prayers. As a matter of fact, He even prays for His people. Jesus is amazing. You do not want to miss Jesus. God, the creator of the world, is putting Jesus on display. He's even doing that this morning, highlighting the ministry of Jesus. So again, if you don't know much about Jesus, you're in a good spot, really glad you're here. I have a couple of books I would commend to you. I'm going to hold them up. Please come see me afterwards. I'll give these to you. This book called Who is Jesus by Greg Gilbert. Read the Gospels. Read this book. This book will teach what the Gospels are saying about Jesus. I'd love to give these to someone. Another one, what is the Gospel? He t- they talk, Paul talks about the good news, the Gospel, the message of salvation. That's what this is referring to. So I'd invite anyone who wants, I got three copies. If 12 people come, we'll order more. You'll get one, okay? Who is Jesus? Do not miss who Jesus is. They did. They didn't see that salvation history culminated in Jesus. Secondly, what's the second thing God wants these people to see from Acts 13? He wants them to know that eternal life is found in Jesus. He's not just the point of salvation history, Eternal life, living forever, living in the joy of God forever, is found in Jesus. You only get eternal life if you trust in, embrace Jesus. That's verses 30 to 39. Now, again, as I told you earlier, you're gonna see four times in these nine verses the statement something like: God raised him, God raised him, God raised him, God raised him. That's you know why that's there? For emphasis. Over and over again, you ever tell your kids something, and then you think I, I better tell them again, and again, and again, and you want them to get it. God raised Jesus from the dead. God is putting His Son on display, taking Him out of the tomb, putting Him before our eyes. Verse thirty: But God raised Him from the dead, and for many days, forty to be specific, He appeared to those who had come up with Him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Who are now his witnesses to the people. Jesus didn't come out of the tomb or allegedly come out of the tomb and then some, some, some conspiracy was out there that, hey, he's risen from the dead. He actually appeared to people. 500 witnesses over 40 days. He appeared. This isn't a hoax. We don't have to hide anything. He appeared. He saw people, talked to them. We even saw that in our scripture reading earlier in the morning. For many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it's written in the second Psalm. So that word promise there, God promised something to the fathers of Israel, God promised something to David. From your line, someone's going to come and rule this nation perfectly forever, and all the nations will be blessed through him. That's the promise. And so Paul's saying that promise has been fulfilled because Jesus is alive. He cites Psalm 2-7, God speaking to his son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Today I have brought you forth. And Paul is saying this is referring to the resurrection. So we know that Jesus was the son of God from eternity past, But after the resurrection, it's as if if God the Father was saying to God the Son, today I have begotten you. Today I'm putting you on the throne. You're ruling and reigning. You did that salvation work. You are there, ruling and reigning. I'm bringing these promises to completion. And then verse 34, and as for the fact that He raised Him from the dead, again a third time, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So I'm going to keep my promise to David. I'm going to do good to the nation through you, as if God is speaking to the Son. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, Psalm 16, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. So just to be clear about what's happening here. God made a promise to David. David, you're gonna be a king. From your line, someone's gonna rule that's gonna live forever. Now that would have been shocking because people don't live forever. But God promised David someone will live forever. And from him, he will bless the nation and bless all of the nations as they turn to him. So Paul's saying the resurrection of Jesus is God keeping his promise to David. This is someone that's going to live forever and bless the nations and bless his people, Israel. That's what Paul's trying to show. The resurrection of Jesus is God keeping his promise to David and the people of Israel and even to the world. Verse 36 For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, died, and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But remember, we just looked at Psalm 16. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. It's so important that Jesus didn't stay dead. If Jesus would have stayed dead, God would be a liar to David, a liar to Israel, a liar to the nations. God's own word hangs on Jesus rising from the dead. And God raised him up, God raised him up, God raised him up, God raised him up. Our God keeps his promises. Verse 37, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't just an interesting fact. It's not just about a history lesson. Because Jesus rose from the dead, God determines to give people that trust in his life and death and resurrection. He determines to give them forgiveness of sins. The whole reason God brought his son to the earth was to forgive people who rebelled against God and the son paid that penalty on the cross, and then he rose from the dead, he's got new life, and what does God do in response to that? He gives people new life in Jesus Christ as they trust in Jesus. This is what happens when you become a Christian. Your affections change, your desires change. Doesn't mean that sin still isn't there, but it no longer rules and reigns like it once did. You become new, you're forgiven, you're changed. Again, 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes, believes, trusts, has faith in Jesus. Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Again, one of Paul's audiences is this group of Jewish people who are so intent on obeying the law of Moses. Obey, 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 obey. Obey. You know what the law of Moses does? It does show God's righteousness. It's good for that reason. But you know what it also does? It condemns. Because you need to obey it perfectly. You're dealing with a holy God here. So the law of Moses is given for you to obey. But as you try to obey, try to obey, try to obey, the burden gets heavier and heavier and heavier. I can't obey like I want. I can't obey like God desires me to do. But notice what Paul says. By him, everyone who trusts in him, believes in him, is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. He's obeyed in your place. This is demonstrating that eternal life is found in Jesus. God raises his son. Jesus is alive today. Earlier in our service, I prayed to Jesus the son. Why would I talk to someone who's dead? He's alive. We talk to Jesus the Son, we sing to Him. Again, I told you before, He prays for us, the Scriptures say. God raised His Son from the dead and eternal life is found by trusting in that resurrection, trusting in what He's done. If Jesus is not alive, then we have no hope. Well, the Bible is full of so many good things to do and good ways to live. Yes, but we've got no hope if if He's still dead. We've got no hope beyond the grave. I've done too many funerals, too many, to have no hope. <laughs> I need something. That grave cannot be final. The scriptures testify that Jesus rose from the dead and that death, therefore, has been defeated. Listen to this. I told you that God is demonstrating that eternal life is found in Jesus. Listen to what. One of Jesus' best friends said in John three thirty-six, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. There it is summarized. You know, we, we like to share information with people, right? We find out something, we want people to know so they're helped. We send our remedies to people, our understandings about this or that to people. We want people to know what we know. Uh, my family will joke with me, and friends will too. I read a book about this last year on breathing, it's just called Breath, New York Times bestseller. And, and I'm just it's so fascinating the, the way God has made our body to function and how breathing affects so many things. And so I, I tell people about the book Breath. I'm telling you right now about the book Breath, okay? But, but, it's, but it, that information has its place, okay? It's, it's not the ultimate information. And if you don't listen to me tell you about breathing and how uh, our airwaves are smaller than people centuries ago and how important that is for sleep apnea, if you don't care about any of that, no problem, all right? I'm not going to push it on you. But we do push things on one another often, and it kind of gets tiring sometimes, all right? So on behalf of you who don't want to hear me talk anymore about breathing, I will stop, okay? But it's interesting to see how people who believe something strongly can really push their way through your privacy and your thinking and your time and highlight for you what you need to know Right? I mean, it never happened to you, am I, just, am I the only one who experiences this? You, you ever had a phone call from a, from a number that you didn't recognize? And the area code is 928. So then you think, well, I don't think it's a solicitor because it's someone in my area code. It's probably someone I know whose number I just don't know. And so you press accept and you find out you were wrong it's a solicitor. Okay, whatever. I got it. Some poor guy is trying to pay the bills and sell me a vacuum cleaner or sell me something. I get it. But it it, it gets too much when you say, I'm sorry, I can't talk right now. I'm bringing, you know, my son to the doctor. Oh, but I'll just need a few seconds of your time. No, I actually can't right now. I'm driving, bringing my son, we're actually about to go. Oh, but, but, okay, just give me a few. Whoa. Red button. Okay, you give me an introductory pitch, all right, I don't have time right now. But when you start pressing, you've gone too far now. I find it interesting that Paul goes to a synagogue and is asked, anybody have any thoughts? And he presses these people on this truth. He's challenging them. Now, let me tell you the time it's appropriate To tell someone what they need to hear, even if they don't want to hear you. It's when it's about their eternal life. And when it's real, because a man rose from the dead. I'm not saying be cruel, be unkind, be audacious. There's way too much of that stuff going around. But we do have the message of eternal life. And sometimes we're more excited about sharing the newest article or the thing or the study or the whatever, and we will be in people's faces about that, but we withhold the message about a resurrected king. Again, I'm not saying be obnoxious, be audacious. Please don't do that. But please give people the message of the resurrected God-man, who First Corinthians 15 says is the first fruits of our resurrection. Because He rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead. This is, friends, this is eternal life we're talking about, eternal life. It's a privilege to speak of the risen Savior. I was reminded of this just in preparing this week for this message. Got a text last night from uh, a pastor friend, he sent a group text to about six or seven of us pastors, and I just want to read it to you and just help me think about this. He said, what an absolute privilege sinners like us have to preach Christ tomorrow. That's so true. And that's not just pastors, you know that. What a privilege it is for sinners like us to preach Christ. Eternal life is found in Jesus. Third and final truth that God wants people to see about His Son is found in verses 40 to 52. Your future is connected to Jesus. Your future is connected to Jesus. Now, the Bible teaches this. Every person's future, every soul that's ever lived is connected to what they do with Jesus. This is what the Bible says. I'm the messenger this morning. Your future is connected to Jesus. You go to a cemetery and you see headstones and, you know, Johnny, great baseball player, husband, father, or whatever it may be. None of that matters anymore. What did Johnny do with Jesus? What did Elaine do with Jesus? That's what matters. So Paul preaches this great sermon and even looks at the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue and looks at the people of Israel, and then he says this in verse 40, this word, beware. Beware. Paul's given them truth, and he's saying, now beware, how you respond to the truth matters. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about, and then he quotes Habakkuk 1.3, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your day, a work that you would not believe, even if one tells it to you. Paul uses an Old Testament prophet that's telling the people of God, Habakkuk, listen, you need to repent and trust in the power of God or else you are going to be disciplined. You're going to be judged. And so Paul uses that. He finishes a sermon. He quotes this prophet and says, you need to beware. You need to take the truth I've given you and respond rightly to it. Don't reject it. Verse 42. As they went out. So now synagogue, you know, some, the, the ruler of the synagogue said, you're loved and dismissed. And they all went out of the synagogue. Okay. As they went out, The people begged that these things might be told them next Sabbath. That's a preacher's dream, by the way. (laughs) Please bring us the next passage next Sabbath. Deal. Got it. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. That's a good sign. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, that's those Gentile god So you had Jewish people and Gentile Godfears both responding positively to what Paul had taught in the synagogue, Paul and Barnabas. After it broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, so as Paul and Barnabas spoke with these people, urged them to continue in the grace of God. That's a great phrase. Pastor Paul, Missionary Paul, Missionary Barnabas, telling people who were believing in what Paul said about Jesus being the goal or the the finality of human history, what human history is pointing to, as they're believing that Jesus is the one that has eternal life in him, as they're believing this, Paul and Barnabas say, now go in the grace of God. See, when you believe in Christ, trust in him for eternal life, that's how you go forward. In the grace of God. God is gracious. You don't go forward thinking, I've got to keep this salvation, I've got to earn it, I've got to show him I'm worthy. No, 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 none of that. You go forward in the grace of God. What a great pastoral encouragement to these people from Paul and Barnabas. Urge them, urge them to continue in the grace of God. Now fast forward to the next Sabbath. Okay, Saturday's here. Verse 44. The next Sabbath... Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Something happened in those last seven days. There's a message out there. Something's going on. What did those guys say? Were you there? I wasn't there. Tell us what they said. Why are people going forward and talking? What's going on? The whole city gathers. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. So some Jews had believed in Paul's message and some were jealous Maybe it's some of the rulers of the synagogue. Who knows? Maybe it's other people who are outside the synagogue. These Jews were jealous, filled with jealousy. That's interesting. It doesn't say that they were angry or They disagreed with what Paul was saying. They didn't like that someone else was the focus. They're filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Now, the Bible teaches, you can see this in Romans 9 through 11, the Bible teaches that Jesus was a Jewish man. He came to his people first. They rejected him, so he went to the Gentiles. Then he sends his prophets, his messengers, his apostles, Paul. And Paul goes to the Jews. He goes to a synagogue to preach the gospel. And some Jews believe, but some were rejecting him, reviling him, discrediting what he was saying, filled with jealousy. And so you'll see in a little bit, Paul says, okay, I'm turning away from you and I'm going to the Gentiles. There's there's a judgment there. And people from Israel who don't embrace Jesus as Messiah don't like it. It's interesting that the word jealousy is used in the New Testament. I, I was teaching on this reality to a group of students a number of years back, and I thought, you know, maybe an illustration would help them. I said, imagine you are, you've got your parents, and they are good to you, they, they instruct you, they guide you, they teach you, and you just do not listen to anything they say. You don't care, you roll your eyes, you mock them, you revile them, you don't want to listen to any of it. They're good parents, but you just, I'm not having any of it, quit talking to me. And so one day you get out of school and normally, you know, parents come to pick you up and one day you come to school and mom and dad are in the car and and they swing up and they say, oh, no, no, we're picking up your best friend, we're picking up, or or that, that other kid in school. We're not picking you up, Kevin. We're, we're picking up, you know, Joe over there. What? We're picking up Joe. We got floor seats to the Phoenix Suns. We're bringing Joe to the, to the game. And, and Joe wants to go with us, and he's excited. And his parents don't, aren't able to take him to things like this, but we asked, and he's like, yeah, I want to go. So that's where... And this kid's thinking, I don't like this. Now, this kid hates his parents doesn't ever want to listen to them but he doesn't want someone else to benefit from their parenting that's what happened with israel no not jesus no way this jesus is not the savior we think we need we need a military political hero not this one and so god the holy spirit turns to the gentiles and says they'll believe and the gentiles believe and are brought into this relationship with god And the people of Israel are like, I don't like this. They're jealous. The word's jealous. It's used here. It's used in Romans chapter 11. Friends, to be a child of God is amazing. To be cared for by Him, loved by Him, guided by Him, taught by Him, listened to by Him, spoken to by Him is amazing. No one in this room ever needs to miss out on that relationship. Trust God in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and be brought into a relationship with God the Father. But these people will not listen. They actually revile Paul and Barnabas. Verse 46, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. That's what Paul's saying they're doing. Now, if 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 we got to go back in time, all right, to that moment, that next Sabbath, And these Jewish people were outside the synagogue saying, don't listen to anything those two guys are saying. Don't listen to it. They don't know what they're talking about. And you went up to them and said, are you sir or are you ma'am judging yourself to be unworthy of eternal life? They would have said, absolutely not. But Paul's saying that's exactly what you're doing when you reject Christ. You are thrusting the truth aside thrusting the good news aside, and you are determining that you yourself are unworthy of eternal life. You're not going to have it. You shouldn't have it. It's kind of like when you tell your son, daughter, you know, sweetie, you're going to be grounded for a month and you chose this. I didn't choose this. You actually did. Let me retrace the steps for you. This was your determination. That's what Paul's saying. Since you thrust aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, and he quotes prophets again, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This was part of God's plan to bring salvation to the Gentiles. And sometimes it comes because his own people reject him. Not all of them did. There were a remnant there a week before in the synagogue that said, keep telling us more, we're with you. But some rejected, so they turned to the Gentiles. Verse 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, when the Gentiles heard that the message of salvation was being brought to them, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, the message of the Lord. The Jews, we don't want to hear any more about Jesus. The Gentiles bring it on. We can't get enough. This is amazing. That's what happens when the gospel is preached. It could be happening right now. I'm done with this. And others saying, this is amazing. Jesus is amazing. Are you kidding me? When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now we're just a few verses away from the end, and then we get that theological bomb dropped on us. As many as were appointed to eternal life, that's appointed in the past, eternity past. There are certain people appointed to eternal life. As many as were appointed to eternal life, all of them believed. So things you should notice about that. God is in control. God is sovereign over salvation. God appoints. But also don't miss this. What does he call people in real space and time to do? Believe. So if you ever try to outthink God and say, well, what if I'm not one of the appointed? That's not the question to be asking. The question to ask is, God, what do you tell me to do? The answer is believe. And then, oh my goodness, I'm one that's been appointed to eternal life. So you major on where God tells you to major. Believe in Christ. That's how it happens, those God appoints, believe. So you believe, and guess what that means? Been appointed unto eternal life. But it's interesting, I read earlier from the Gospel of Matthew, Pilate, make that tomb as secure as you can. Good luck, okay? God's more powerful than Pilate. People accepting, rejecting, what's going on here? God's in control. And the God who's in control says, believe on my son. See my son, trust in him, trust in him, believe on him. I raised him, I raised him from the dead, I raised him from the dead, believe on him, I raised him, believe him. That's what God's saying. Verse 49, And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconia, Paul and Barnabas did. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is fascinating. That idea of shaking the dust off your feet, you know what that comes from? It's Jewish people that had to go into Gentile territory. Ugh! they go into Gentile territory and what do they do as they're leaving Gentile territory? Get that dust off of me. I'm back home where I should be in the land of God. Paul and Barnabas shake, their, sh- shake the dust off of their feet where the Jews are rejecting Christ shaking that dust off and going to the Gentiles to continue preaching the gospel. Do not be someone that rejects the grace of Jesus Christ. Don't do it. Our future is connected to Jesus Christ, what we do with Jesus. Think of Mark 9, 7. Jesus is on a mountain with his followers and a voice comes, we understand to be the voice of God from heaven. And he says, this is my beloved son, God putting his son on display. You know what the next words are? Listen to him. Listen to him. God putting his son on display and calling us to listen to him. You know, a couple of years back, we had a surprise birthday party for my dad. My brother-in-law and I were gonna uh, bring him to Pittsburgh to watch a Steeler game. He's been a lifelong Steeler fan, never been to Pittsburgh, never seen a game in person. We're like, dad's 70th birthday, let's bring him to the... Steeler game, and uh, we're at Sky Harbor Airport, and there are these two gates that are very close together, I mean like just a matter of a few feet apart, and both flights were boarding at the same time. Um, Someone dropped the ball evidently there, but both flights boarding at the same time, and one was to Pittsburgh, and one I think was to Seattle, so close. At Sky Harbor. But dad, you go in the wrong door, you're not going to see the Steelers, okay? You're going to end up in Seattle. So we've got to make sure we go in the right door. That's what it's like in the hearing of the gospel. The message of Jesus Christ and his eternal life is proclaimed and everyone's in one room, one gathering, hearing about this. And you walk out and go in two wildly different places. My hope is that everyone would respond to Christ and end up where and how God wants them to, trusting in Jesus and moving forward in the grace of God. It's such an important deal, such an important truth, such an important decision as to what we do with Jesus Christ. The Creator of the world has put Him on display for us, not just in Acts 13, 2,000 years ago, He's put Him on display for us this morning. I want to do this at the very end, I want you to think about just in these last 12 verses, 13 verses, 40 to 52, listen to all the words related to those that are rejecting Jesus, okay? Just listen here. Verse 41, scoffers. 45, filled with jealousy, reviling. 46, thrusting the message aside, judging yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Verse 50, inciting people to hostility, stirring people up, and even persecution. That can't be a fun way to live. Reminds me of the Apostle Paul. He did those things to people preaching the gospel. But then look at the words associated with people who trust in Christ. Verse 43, continue in the grace of God. Verse 47, being given salvation, a rescue. Verse 48, rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord. And verse 52, Paul and Barnabas filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Those are two wildly different sets of words, wildly different realities that affect the future after you either reject or trust in Christ. I think of the Apostle Paul after he responded to Jesus Christ, and now he's rejoicing and telling people about Him. No longer inciting, no longer filled with jealousy, no longer thrusting aside the truth, no longer stirring people up and persecuting people. Now he, in this passage, is filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, I hope those words land in a fresh way on you today continuing in the grace of God. Guess what, you still aren't able to obey the law of Moses perfectly. We still have the flesh, but there's no burden on you. Your condemnation's been removed, Romans 8, 1. Christian, continue in the grace of God. The resurrected Lord prays for you. The resurrected Lord keeps you. The resurrected Lord has given you an inheritance that is not fading away, undefiled, imperishable, continue in the grace of God. Rejoice, glorify the Lord. Be thankful for your salvation all over again. Be filled with joy and be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're not a Christian, again, Christ has been put on display today. If you think that you're distant from God, you're haven't obeyed him like I should, I'm so imperfect, I've messed up so many times, I've been so cruel, I've done this wrong and that wrong. I wanna remind you that that's exactly the kind of people that God saves. People who are perfect and righteous don't evidently need a savior. He came for me, he came for you, he came for us who are all sinful and who have made bad decisions and have regrets, that's why he came. Jesus himself said, I didn't come for the healthy. I'm a doctor. I came for the sick. I'm going to tell you about a man named John Bunyan. He wrote the most famous, best-selling book other than the Bible, Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan became a believer later on in his life. He was a filthy man, a horrible man, a coarse man, and it's interesting. In John Bunyan's life, he tried to remedy himself at least two or three times. He tried to be more moral. He would, for a season in his life, before he became a Christian, he would go to church twice a week. He tried and tried and tried and tried and tried. And one day, in a town called Bedford, where he would end up being a pastor, ironically enough, in a town called Bedford, he heard a few ladies talking about the new birth and how God had changed them from the inside out. He was captivated by that. He didn't become a Christian right after that, but that stuck in his head number of years later, he actually believed in the grace of Jesus Christ. He stopped trying to earn favor with God. And he actually believed and saw, he saw for the first time, oh my goodness, he died for me because I'm a sinner. I don't make myself righteous to be right with God. And that's what broke him. And Bunyan said this, I saw moreover that it was not my good frame or heart that made my righteousness better. And he said this, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. My righteousness, his new righteousness, my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself. Jesus gave him righteousness. And his life was never the same. Bunyan simply needed the grace of Jesus to be put on display before him. I pray that today by the words that Paul has said in Acts 13 or maybe by the songs that we've sung that you've seen that Jesus came to be gracious to sinners. No need to earn anything with God but respond to his son's offering. Respond to his son's life and death and resurrection. God has put Jesus on display for you today. What a glorious God-man he is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for ushering your son into human history, putting him before us even today. Thank you for this passage. We pray for life today. We pray for joy for believers, a joy that we go forward in the grace of God. We pray for new life today, those that maybe before thrust aside the good news of Christ. Maybe today's a day where they see him for who he is. And worship and adore Him. Father, all of us need Your grace. All of us are in need. We pray that Your Son would be brought to us, closely to us, that we would find our joy in being in Him. We pray this in His name. Amen. Right now, we'll invite the ushers to receive the weekly offering. If you're a visitor, this is not for you. This is something our church family does as we commit to one another and the ministry here and the expansion of the gospel beyond our borders. So, uh, I invite you to let that go by if you're a new visitor.